Um, I never went to preaching school, but I've read some books, and my guess is that in a preaching class and in the books that I've read, the number one thing you're supposed to do when you start a sermon is to capture everybody's attention with a funny story or an illustration. And I'm not funny. We realized that last week. So instead of trying to amuse you with some story I can come up with, I'm just gonna start with God's word, if that's cool with you all this morning. Yeah? Okay, great. So if you, thanks Magnus. Um, Okay, so if you have your Bibles, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians, the book that we have been going through for the past several weeks and will continue to be going through. Uh, And so if you haven't been bringing your Bible and you want to follow along, I encourage you to do that. Uh, We're going to be in this series for a while. This is week number five, and we are on chapter one. (laughs) So... uh, We're gonna settle into 1 Corinthians for a while, but I think it's so important because this is such a rich book. And this is one of the few letters that's written to a specific church, like to the church body. And I think that means that it's also relevant for us today. So 1 Corinthians, we're gonna, I'll read the whole passage that we're covering all five verses and then we'll dive in. So 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, I think, I don't know how many verses that actually is, Sharon. Is that five or is that six? Okay, she's not listening to me, great. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So this is gonna be a really uplifting sermon today, because as we read through this, we see that Paul is shooting straight with the Corinthians. And he starts with a call to remember. Verse 26 says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. So I wanna pause there for a second. Consider your calling. This is written to a church body. And so I want to ask you this morning, Curtis Lake Church, in the room and online, consider or remember your calling. And what Paul means by this is, Remember the moment where you surrendered your life to Jesus. Remember the moment when he invited you into partnership with him. The moment where everything changed. The moment where you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Remember that moment. Which is this really like, oh, And then he just wants to make sure that they are not looking at it through rose-colored glasses. And he says, not many were wise from a human perspective, not many were powerful, and not many were of noble birth. So he doesn't sugarcoat things to make the Corinthians feel better. He says, you weren't that great. Don't ever forget that. See, he has to say that because the Corinthians had been used, this church had been used by God in a really incredible way and they had begun to develop a chip on their shoulder. 
that they were the church. They knew it all. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Just remember, you aren't that great. See, and we know that, and Paul can back this up because um, the city of Corinth is actually located in a very interesting place. And uh, it's located, it kind of surrounds this isthmus that connects, AKA cuts off some land that separates seas. So Corinth, it was destroyed and then rebuilt. And it was rebuilt as this really convenient merchant city, right? And so people would bring their goods from one sea and they had to cross through Corinth to get them to the next place and vice versa. And so what happened is people would settle in Corinth. And these people, let me tell you, you don't move to a place that's kind of a, um, in between place if you're really content in a place that's comfortable. So ancient Corinth was the greatest port of the classical Greek world that can control both bays on both sides of the isthmus. It was a meeting point for merchants and travelers of the east and west and a mandatory passage for all who moved between Northern Greece and the Peloponnese. These people, they didn't have PhDs or eloquence they didn't, com- they didn't command armies or run huge corporations. They didn't possess extraordinary wealth or have influence or status. They weren't powerful, noble, or even respected. So Paul's completely legitimate in saying, remember who you were. Don't forget that. In other words, he's saying, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before the fall, as Proverbs 16, eight says, or the great philosopher Ice Cube said, check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> because they were starting to develop this arrogance that they were better than they, they thought they were better than they were. So he calls them to remember. Then he calls them It's a call to humility. We love that, don't we? Oh, humility, it's everyone's favorite topic. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. That's a lot of words. (laughs) Basically, God is saying, I didn't have to use you, insignificant person. But I chose you, I chose you, and we'll learn about this in just a second, to reveal my glory. And he does that by those foolish Corinthians shaming the wise, the weak Corinthians to shame the strong, and the insignificant and despised to bring what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is something. He used ordinary people like you and like me. And I think sometimes we forget that when we read the Bible. We think that these biblical characters, these narratives about people who lived thousands of years ago, we tend to think of them as powerful, perfect, put together people. But they're just like you and me. 
You know, I was looking up here when the band was playing earlier and I was like, who would have thought that this group of people would be together? I mean, I had the honor of knowing a lot of the backstories of the musicians and the singers that were up here. And let me tell you, they're out back not listening for service. Not many of them were wise by human standards. There were no kings or princes up here. As far as I know, no one up here had a PhD. But what I can tell you is the people up here were broken individuals just like you and me. That I am a broken and insignificant individual just like the people of Corinth. That God invites into what he's doing. This is the way that God's kingdom works. If you're interested in learning more about this kind of reversal of roles with the insignificant and the poor and the foolish being used by God, I wanna encourage you to download the Bible Project app. You can write that down, Bible Project app, and look up the, the plan that is God's upside down kingdom. And this will walk you through the gospels where Jesus flips every teaching that these people thought that they had known on their heads. We covered quite a few of them when we did our series on the Sermon on the Mount. But God operates in an upside down kingdom. If he didn't, think about how kingdoms work. There is a king and there are subjects. The subjects do not become royalty, right? There was all this scandal when the princes married, one of the princes married an American and she wasn't a nobility and whatever because that just doesn't happen. There is a hierarchy for a reason, but God is saying, I don't care about that. I wanna invite you to partner with me in my mission to save the world. The foolish are shaming the wise, the weak are shaming the strong, the insignificant becomes significant and the significant become insignificant. He says to bring about nothing what was once something. So not only does God bring up from the ground people and elevate them to a place where he can they can serve him, right? Elevate is an interesting word to use, but he invites people who are poor and broken and foolish to partner with him, but he also takes those who think they have it all together and he's like, no, no, no. You don't. And oftentimes we esteem people who seem to have it all together. And rightly so, in a lot of places, right? Like I go to a doctor who has studied for years and years and years medicine and can help me with an ailment, right? But what I don't need is the person who like created the medicine to be the one to give it to me. I need the ordinary person who studied and worked and is living out their calling that God has put them on earth to do, to, to plant where God has planted them, to, where God has put them and to serve. And so God takes people who think that they are all that in a bag of chips and he says, actually you're not because look, I'm using the foolish. And so I just wanna say something that Josh has been reiterating over and over and over again, that God hates arrogance. 
And I might offend some of you when I say this, and I'm sorry, not sorry if I do. You can write about it on the Slido page. But I think that sometimes we get on a Christian power trip and we think that because we are pushing agendas that are so righteous and probably good and helpful, we think that we are the savior of the cause that we are defending. And I just wanna tell you, you're not. I don't care how many, I'm totally gonna offend people, I don't care how many bumper stickers you have, I don't care how many t-shirts you wear, I don't care how many social media posts you post, you are not the savior. But you are invited to partner with the savior. So that no one may boast in his presence, it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who, become, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. God won't share his glory. It's not because he's on a power trip, but because he's the only one who can say, as we read in Isaiah 42, eight, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, all powerful, all present, all knowing. He is the Lord. He will not share his glory with another, but what we in our Christian crusades try to do for these causes that we so believe in and that are probably good causes. We try to share glory with God. And he goes, no, I'm not about that. We are not invited to follow Jesus because we're great. If you are coming here today, hoping that someone would stand up here and say, you are amazing. Don't change a thing. You came to the wrong place. Because when we remember who we were, we recognize and own that we are not invited to follow and partner with Jesus because we are great, but because he is. Through him, we have access. Through him. We miss this. We think that because we were born into the right time and the right place and we go to the right church that we have somehow made it into the righteous. Through him. Through him. We have access to righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And this is where it gets really good. Righteousness through Jesus. Another word for righteousness, our salvation. Through Jesus. You know, I, there's this term that we use a lot and you've probably heard it. Maybe you've played the game, mercy. If not, you didn't grow up in the early 2000s in a school because you'd like twist the person's arm and then they'd be like, mercy, right? Don't do it, it hurts. But this term mercy, we often associate with it's, it's mercy or grace. 
And I wanna take just a second this morning to differentiate between the two. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Did you catch that? Not getting what we deserve. Our righteousness, our salvation. We were fools, we were weak, we were nothing. But God, my two favorite words in the whole Bible, sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. He was buried, he was raised three days later, and so through him, we have salvation. It's a both and for the record, Jesus died and rose. You can't separate the two. Because if he just died, but because he defeated death and rose again in him, we find our salvation. In him, we find our righteousness. In him, we receive mercy and are declared not guilty. And my fear is that we stop there. My fear is that the church in America and the church around the world stops there. I have been saved, hallelujah. Yes, it is something to celebrate. It is something to be thankful for. But God didn't save us just to live a comfortable life. God didn't save us just so that we can feel better about our eternity. God didn't save us so that we can just walk around and be like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I was saved in 1998. Who cares? I can save a ton of money, but if I don't use it, What's the point? Some of you just need to go shopping. Okay, here's the thing. Sanctification is the shopping trip. Sanctification is our example of what it means to live out of the gratitude that we have for our salvation. Our example in this throughout the gospels is Jesus Christ. Because he did two things. He surrendered his will and he pursued his father's will. That's sanctification. We are saved through Jesus Christ. But we are then invited into this process of sanctification. And this one is hard. And you know what else? It doesn't happen in an instant. Sanctification is a day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, surrendering who I am at the foot of the cross and pursuing Jesus, pursuing God, pursuing what he has for me. Jesus did this. In the garden, he prayed to his father. He said, if I can get out of this, that would be awesome. That's the Shana translation. But not my will, but yours be done. It's not about what we want to do. It is about a surrendered pursuit of Jesus.
day after day after day. And in that, the next step, the next thing that we experience is redemption, freedom. What I don't want is I don't want for our church to be a place full of people who simply received mercy. I want us to be a place where we receive mercy and grace and live it out. Because while mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace is getting what we don't deserve. I'll say it again. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, but grace is getting what we don't deserve. I have three little boys, and one of them gets out of it because he's just an infant. So he's just cute and adorable and everybody loves him. But I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and man, they are something. We have a playroom. It is strategically located downstairs. So I never have to look at it. <laughs> because the times that I go downstairs are for bedtime and we make sure all the lights are turned off. It's like a, if we wanna keep mama happy, we just don't let her see the playroom, right? But I'll tell my boys, hey, can you go clean the playroom? Are a three and a five-year-old gonna clean up trucks and blocks? No, they're gonna make an obstacle course and then yell it upstairs that neither one is doing the cleaning. And then they're gonna say, but can I still have a treat? Because yes, I bribe my kids. And you know what? They don't deserve that treat. But if I'm gonna be a parent who's seeking to model the life that God did through Jesus, I need to extend mercy because what they deserve is to go to their room for not listening. But they're not gonna get what they deserve, but they're gonna get what they don't deserve. And they're gonna come upstairs and because I'm a sucker, they're gonna get a cookie. Now, if my kids don't listen, this is probably why, but this is how God's economy works. You and I in our brokenness in our original state of being, sinful creatures do not deserve anything. But we walk around like we do, just like the Corinthian church. So remember who you were. But God extends mercy to us through our salvation that we don't get what we deserve, both in a good way and a bad way. We deserve to be separated from him. That's where mercy comes in. We don't deserve to be in relationship with him and to be used by him and to partner with him. And that's where grace comes in. And redemption is our freedom. But what I think happens is we stick in the righteousness camp with the salvation like I talked about before, we chill there. Because we wanna pursue Jesus, right? Like nobody in here who's committed their life to following Jesus is like, I don't wanna pursue him. 
right? I wanna, I wanna partner with God. Look at all these great things that I'm doing for God. Yes, that's wonderful that you're pursuing that, but without the surrendered peace, you're not gonna walk in freedom because you are carrying the weight of all the things that you're doing. You're not that strong. We are saved, we are sanctified, we are redeemed. And this is what Paul doesn't want us to miss. That because of all of those things, there's a third call. And it's a call to worship. When we remember who we were, when we realize what Jesus did for us that we did not deserve and took what we did deserve, it should draw us to our face. We don't deserve anything, but God chose, invited, expressed his love for us. And our response should not be, look at how great I am, but rather it should be, look at how great he is. In order that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's not about how great we are. It's about how great he is. And when we can wrap our minds around that, it changes everything. And so here's, here's the encouragement piece for those of you who think that I'm just like beating you down. I'm sorry. Here's the encouragement. It's okay that you're not all that in a bag of chips. God doesn't call the best. He calls the surrendered. In all of your accomplishments in this world, it doesn't matter. That's not why, God does not invite you to be part of what he's doing in this world because you are great. He invites you to be a part of what he's doing in this world when you are surrendered to him. Because remember, he doesn't wanna share his glory, nor should he have to. A warning. You can choose to be humble and submit and surrender. Or when we stand before the Lord, you can be humbled then. Because no one will boast in his presence about their accomplishments. Instead, we will stand before him and cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so by surrendering ourselves now, we are just getting to enjoy the freedom that will last for eternity. But if we wanna hold on to our power and authority in this world, this verse says, these verses say, you will be humble <laughs> one way or the other. God will not share his glory. <laughs> and 
And let me just tell you, it's so much better. Well, actually, you know what? To be honest, I don't know. I haven't died. But my guess is that it's gonna be so much better to humbly pursue Jesus on this earth than to be humbled before God in the throne room. Just my guess. Take it for what it's worth. So what? I've told you you're not rock stars. I've told you that God is. Now what? How do we apply this? First, you remember your calling. Who were you before Jesus? Where were you before he saved you? What were you before he invited you? Think about that. Who were you? Where were you? What were you? When you were given the invitation to follow Jesus, when you realized that he was reaching out to you and you returned, took hold and said, I wanna follow you. Remember, remember. Surrender. This is that sanctification piece. Day in and day out, humbly coming before the Lord and saying, not my will, but yours be done. I had a friend recently tell me that every morning she gets on her knees in her shower because it's the only place that her kids leave her alone. She's lucky, mine don't even do that. But she gets on her knees in the shower and she just opens her hands and she says, God, I surrender this day to you. Is she a perfect mom? No. Is she a perfect friend? She's pretty darn close, but no. Is she a perfect wife, a perfect daughter, a perfect professional? No. But she's a surrendered one. And that's the one that God wants to partner with. And so I just wanna ask you, what are you holding on to? What are you not willing to let go because you're afraid? We're about to sing a song called No Longer Slaves. where we quite literally get to boast in the Lord because it says, I'm no longer a slave to fear, but I am a child of who? Of God. And because I am his child, because of what he has done, the bridge says, you split the sea so I could walk through it. My fears were drowned in perfect love. You rescued me so I can stand and sing. You know what it doesn't say? I am a rock star. It says, you rescued me so I can stand and sing. I am a child of God. 
But to get to that point, you have to let go of the fear. You have to let go of the power. You have to let go of the chip on your shoulder. Remember who you were and humbly pursue Jesus every day. And what that will do is it will cause you to passionately worship him who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. You get to walk in the freedom knowing it is not up to you. Because if it was up to you and if it was up to me, we would be in huge trouble. But because God chose the foolish things, you and I are invited to walk in freedom and be a part of what he is doing, no matter how messy it looks. The tagline for this series is, because people are, per- are not perfect <laughs> and neither is our church. And this is a messy topic because I'm asking you to dig down inside of you and say, Lord, what do I need to change? What do I need to surrender? This should not be an easy sermon for any of us. Let me tell you, it's not easy for me. This shouldn't be one of those feel good sermons until, until, We say, you rescued me so I could stand and sing. I am a child of God and boast in who he is and in what he has done. And a couple of weeks ago, Josh ended by just saying, if you feel like you need to move as a response, do it. If in your surrender, you just can't stay in your seat and you wanna come up as just a symbol of saying, Jesus, I surrender, and you wanna come up front, feel free. If you wanna kneel down where you are, guess what? These chairs move. You can push them out of the way, kneel right where you are, stand right where you are. But I wanna ask you, Is it worth it? To give up what you want to walk in the freedom that he offers. Until you answer that question and you have to do it for yourself. You can do all the right things. You can say all the right things. But until you hold on to the truth, not my will, but yours. And experience that freedom, man, there's nothing like it. I'm gonna call JP out for a second. And he's not gonna be mad at me. But when God invited JP to follow him, JP was in rock bands. And God called him out of that and said, do you love me enough to give that up? Do you love me enough to not drum another day in your life? 
I know this has been your identity. I know this is your circle. I know these are your people. Do you love me enough to give it up? And he said, yes. And you might be like, wait a second, he's drumming (laughs) every freaking week. You know what God did? When JP surrendered and said, Lord, I'll give it up for you because you are worth following, God gave it back to him in the most beautiful way. God says, I won't share my glory with another, but if you're willing, I'd love to partner with you. Not for his glory, not for my glory, not for your glory, but for his glory.